Hi, this is Jim Martin with the Little Things First podcast. I'm here with Tracy Van Deventer, who you'll be hearing from in just a moment. Uh, today, we're going to be listening to an interview with Karen Chenoweth. Karen Chenoweth is with Education Trust, and um, that is a research organization that looks at some of the great things that are happening in schools across the country. She has her own podcast uh, online, and uh, we got an opportunity to talk to Karen. We'll be hearing from her in just a moment. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, we would love to hear your feedback. You can pose a question to us. You can do that on the Little Things First blog, uh, and we will try to answer your question here on the podcast. Uh, you can also subscribe to our podcast, which is really helpful for us because you get these episodes and we know that we have listeners out there um, and that you're enjoying our work. And also uh, you can um, rate us on iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you're thinking of our podcast. Um, and uh, again, that helps us uh, with that feedback and uh, we can use it to continue to improve what we're offering to you. So thank you so much for listening today. And uh, we're going to turn the time over to Karen Chenoweth, again, a researcher in the field of education. She's formerly a reporter, just a fascinating history and some great things that she's uh, been able to discover by delving deep into the practices of principals and schools across the country. So Karen Chenoweth. Okay, so you want to start or we just start? Yeah, so... Yeah, okay. sure. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to the work that you're doing now. So I actually went to college at a time when people were told, do not become a teacher. And this, there was just a very particular couple of years in there where just that's what students were told. Do not become a teacher. There are no jobs. It was a ridiculous thing to tell people because it's a huge field. And you know, I could have found a job eventually, but maybe not initially. Anyway, so I was discouraged from becoming a teacher. And so I became a reporter instead. And so my training is actually as a reporter. Um, and I've focused on education for probably the last almost 30 years, which is a little scary to me. But um uh, you know, actually, since I had kids, once I had kids, I was, I really focused on education, but it was a long time interest of mine. Um, even, even when I was uh, in high school and college. Um, but the, so I, I focused on education. I wrote a column for the Washington Post for about five years on schools and education in two of the local counties, Montgomery County and Prince George's County near in suburban Washington. And um, then my uh, daughters wanted to go to college and I had to make more money. So I, uh, I linked up with Education Trust, which is a national education advocacy organization that I had trusted to give me information for quite a long time. It was always a um, very straightforward organization that if they said something, I could pretty much go to go to the bank on it and that's incredibly important for a reporter so um so on their end they had long thought that it wasn't enough to say that some schools are doing better than other schools they felt they needed to help educators understand what that looked like 
what do those schools that are getting better results, what are they doing? So they hired me to help find and learn from high-performing and rapidly improving schools that enroll uh, large percentages of students of color and students from low-income families. And what is they're doing to outperform their peers. And I've been doing that for about 14 years now. Great. And your your latest book is called Schools That Succeed. That. Yeah, Schools That Succeed: How School How Educators Marshal the Power of Schools for Improvement. And what happened was, you know, my initial my initial foray into this was I don't know what schools that succeed look like. Um, and I profiled a bunch of schools, I, I, and that was a book called It's Being Done. And um, I, I kind of identified 25 characteristics, including the really nice places to work, which was, that was the biggest surprise to me. Because I was worried they mm. would be sort of test prep factories where teachers felt sort of stepped on and stuff. That was not the case. There's a lot of creativity, a lot of passion that goes into these schools. And it really came out in the professionalism and uh, kind of uh, joy, the joie de vivre of the teachers as far as I was, you know, what I observed. Um, so that was like the first iteration. The second, but educators said I hadn't given enough information about how these schools get their work done. So I published a second book, How It's Being Done, where I identified five processes. I profiled eight schools, all high-performing schools, and I identified five processes that they all shared. They, uh, these are going to come as a shock to every ed educator. They focus on what kids need to learn. They collaborate on how to teach it. They assess frequently to see if kids have gotten it. They use the data from those assessments to look at patterns um, across grades, across subjects, so that they can say, you know, so that a teacher can say, oh, your kids are, your kids actually understood slope of the line. My ki I, I have yet to get my kids to understand that. What is it you're doing? I consider that the most powerful question that can be asked in a school or in in education, your kids are doing better. What are you doing? Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. then finally, uh, they build relationships. So those are the five processes, and you know, all the schools uh, implement those five processes. They're all very well grounded in research. Different researchers might use slightly different words, but these these are not shocks to any serious educator. This is this is the work of education, really but they're hard to implement in a really consistent way. And so um, I, at the end of that book, I said, you know, leaders seem kind of important. And that led to the next book, which was a study of the leaders of these schools. And uh, what we found, this was co-written with the director of research at EdTrust, the then director of research. And what we found when we studied principles of these high-performing and rapidly improving uh, high-poverty and um, high-poverty schools that enrolled large numbers of students of color was at their heart, they had a deep belief in their bones that their students could achieve 
And that made a huge difference. So they had this deep belief and then they organized the school around that belief. And so I kind of thought that was it. I've done, you know, I've got my trilogy and it's, you know, I don't have anything more to say. And I kept visiting the schools and I kept talking to the leaders and I kept hearing the same thing over and over again, which was, it's all about the system. It's all about um, the, you know, schools are systems within systems within systems. Um, and I realized that I hadn't actually gotten to the heart of what these principles do. And, and, and what it is, is, uh, what I said before, which is they organize the school around that belief that kids can achieve. And so I really wanted to convey that. And that's, that's what I did. That's what I hope I did in schools that succeed. Um, I really wanted to focus on how the principals use the managerial tools that they have to um, make it possible for all kids to achieve. That was a long answer. I promised not to go on and on, and I apologize. No, that's great. great. So t talk Can a little just, bit about uh, – So, oh, go ahead, please, Tracy. Well, I just want to jump in because, Karen, uh, for our listeners, I want them to know that that third book, Getting It Done, Leading Academic Success in Unexpected Schools, you hadn't shared the title, so I want our listeners to be able to go and find that third book as well, which I do think is a really important step towards getting – um, to student success is looking at the role that leader plays, you know, even before you look at that system. So I wanted to share that title to make sure we get that out there. Well, thank you. <laughs> you bet. You're on, Jim. Sure. So, so your latest book uh, talks about um, the school systems that make a big difference in student outcomes. And one of those was the master schedule. In fact, you you repeat that quite often throughout the book that the schools that were successful had master schedules and used them to their benefit. So can you talk a little bit about it and what is it about the master schedule that seemed to make such a big difference? Sure. So um, master schedules do a bunch of things. At the, at the sort of surface level, they make sure that every kid and every grown up in the school has some place to be and, and uh, you know, something to do at all times, right? Um, but it's important to make sure that that time is really well spent and not wasted time. And the, the example that really springs to mind of a waste of time uh, comes from an elementary school, Ware Elementary in Kansas, when Deb Gustafson became, became principal, she kind of looked at the master schedule and what she realized was that um, the teachers had organized the schedule. It had kind of been left to them. And they had, for, for obvious reasons, it's not, you know, they weren't trying to waste time. But what they had done was broken out um, the bathroom time so that every elementary school teacher had 15 minutes where she took her class to the bathroom at, in the morning and in the uh, afternoon. And actually, I remember that being the process when I was in elementary school. And she added it up. It, that's a half an hour a day. That's 30 minutes a day. That's times five. Yeah. That's 150 minutes a week times, you know, how, how, how many weeks. It, it was about 90 hours of instructional time that was spent going to the bathroom. 
And she reclaimed that. And she said, no, that's not how we do it. First of all, kids don't go to the bathroom that way. You know, they don't, they need to go to the bathroom when they need to go to the bathroom, not at the 15 minutes you have assigned them. So um, she reclaimed that time as instructional time. That was 90 minutes. That was 90 hours of instructional time. Yeah. That's a lot of time. So, so that's like the obvious, like waste of time. Right. And at a high school level, uh, a lot of times uh, kids, if their schedules don't work out, they're assigned to be aides. Now, sometimes teacher aides, that is an important instructional thing to be because if teacher, if, if kids want to be teachers, it exposes them to that, you know, it's almost like an internship. So I'm not, I'm not ever, I'm not saying it's always bad to have kids be teacher aides, but often it's just like, oh, well, we don't really have anything for that kid this time. So we'll make him a teacher's aide. Um, And that's a waste of time, right? That's a waste of the child's time. Um, and, and, um, most kids and particularly kids who live in poverty have no time to waste. They need their time to be productively used at all times. That doesn't mean they have to be, uh, you know, slaving away at all times, but it needs to be productive time for them. So, so first of all, we, we have to make sure that there's no time wasted because there, there is no time to waste. But second, um, it has to be really purposefully used. So again, an elementary uh, example. Um, Well, uh, just to step back for a moment. The important part about a master schedule is to make sure that students have uninterrupted instructional time and teachers have uninterrupted collaboration time. And being uninterrupted is is actually quite difficult because at again at an elementary school level, um, you've got all the specials, you've got the pullouts, you've got the speech therapy, you've got the uh, uh, any kind of tutoring, you've got reading intervention, you know, you've got a million things going on in an elementary school. So Molly Bensinger Lacey, when she went into Graham Road Elementary and both, I, I talk about both Ware Elementary and Graham Road in how it's being done. Um, what she found with the schedule was, again, the teachers had um, kind of built it, but the, it was the specials teachers who had built it because um, the art, music, and PE teachers, I think they were part-time. I can't remember if they were, you know, they were assigned to two schools. So they had complicated schedules. And so the schedules were really built around their needs. And what that meant was that instruction was really broken up. So she came in, she said, no, 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 we're going to build it around uninterrupted schedules of reading and math. And we're not going to pull kids out for ELL, for English language learning and for special ed and so forth. We're going to push those teachers in to the classroom so that kids are getting the help within the instructional uh, block and not being pulled away from the instruction so that they don't know what's going on. You know, a lot of times kids are pulled out for say uh, title one services. Well, they're missing the core instruction. They're missing history or science. So, so you, in order to build a schedule, you have to really be very thoughtful about what resources you have to push into the classroom. How do you ensure that kids 
schedules are not being interrupted. So that's at the elementary school level. The high school equivalent, well, there are two things at the high school. You have this need for uninterrupted um, instructional time and collaboration time, and high school schedules start becoming crazy in terms of getting teachers that uninterrupted collaboration time because you have a teacher who is primarily an algebra teacher but also teaches geometry so how are you going to get collaboration time for both algebra and geometry these are complicated questions right i'm not saying they're easy questions but those are the questions that have to be foremost in the scheduler's mind um, when they're building a schedule and the other piece of that is um, at the high school level, high schools have a tendency to take kids in where they are at that level and then keep them there. They're sort of engines mm -hmm. of stasis. So if kids come in at an advanced level, they're put on an advanced track and they're, you know, unless some horrible thing happens, they're off to college and so forth. They come in a in at what is often considered a remedial level, they stay at that remedial level their entire high school career. That right. that's the tendency. So if you if you say, well, let's see, remedial classes. Now when when people invented remedial classes, that wasn't a stupid idea. You know, kids come into high school and they really aren't ready for algebra. So let's put them in remedial math. That's not, that's not a stupid idea. The problem is it hasn't been proven to work anywhere. Mm. So, I mean, I, I don't know of a remedial program that has worked. Kids are in those remedial classes forever. So it takes somebody thinking about that master schedule to go, okay, well, remedial classes don't work. Let's put them in algebra, but then let's get, give them an additional class to um, maybe preview the lesson and anticipate the barriers they're going to have and get them the help they need before they need it, right? So that's another way to approach that problem that I, I have seen is more successful uh, in school. <clears throat> so these are the questions that you have to have in your master's when thinking about a master's schedule. My kid's high school, the principal hated scheduling, handed it off to an assistant principal who um, unfortunately didn't know what he was doing. And kids, uh, kids were lined up for a week in the first year, week of school. You know, I'm in guitar two and I never took guitar one. I'm in algebra one, and but I already passed algebra two. I mean, it was a mess. And that is not an, un wow. that's not atypical. That's not an atypical experience in high school. Wow. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, I, I've seen that myself, and uh, and I appreciate the the thoughtfulness that you're putting there for all of us to look at what's best for the use of time, uh, because it's so precious and we have so little of it. So um, that's right. I mean, once you count that, count the you know professional days and the holidays and the you know uh, all the all the special things and the pep rallies and you know I mean. You don't have that much instructional time. Yeah. You have yeah, to use absolutely. it as wisely as possible. And once you have that time, once teachers have that in, 
uninterrupted instructional time, they have to use that time really wisely. So um, a lot of times, um, so Diane Skrika, when she went into Elmont, and I wrote about Elmont in both It's Being Done and Schools That Succeed, she goes into Elmont and she's, first of all, kids are wandering the hallways. You know, that's a very typical problem in, in high schools. And what it just means is uh, that instruction is continually being in, interrupted by kids kind of wandering in late and I'm sorry, miss. And, uh, you know, oh, I need a pass. Okay. You know, so then they interrupt twice. You know, I mean, it's just like teachers hate it and for good reason. Um, but once you get them, the kids on time, they have to use that time wisely. They can't waste the first five minutes waiting for everybody to show up. They can't waste the last five minutes saying, oh, well, you know, why don't you pack up and, uh, 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 you know, you, you, can, you can talk to your friends and pack up your bags because we're kind of done. If you do that, that's 10 minutes from each class. Again, just add it up. That's hours and hours of instructional time that's lost. Mm -hmm. Right. So teachers need to use their time really wisely, but the it's the job of the principal to make sure that they have that time to to use. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good. Uh, another question that we have, and we probably have time for two more. Uh, question talking about relationships with students, you know, and how important that is, um, and successful schools uh, really focusing on that. Tell us more about what you see our successful schools are doing uh, that's different regarding uh, teacher-student relationships? So this is, this is a really complicated topic and we're just gonna sort of skirt the surface of it. But at, at essence, the schools that succeed, you know, the schools I write about, these highly successful schools with large populations of students of color and students of poverty, they focus very much on ensuring a, a, an, a culture of respect. Uh -huh. And it's, a res, it's respect for students, it's respect for teachers, it's, it's respect all, for parents, for all around. Everyone gets respect. And this is, again, it's a little tricky because teachers um, are often... They came through a system, I came through a system where sarcasm is, you know, really a tool, an engine of control. Mm -hmm. Sarcasm is the essence of non-respect, disrespect. And um, you could get away with being mean and sarcastic to me, but uh, it is harmful to kids. And it harms, you know, it harms the, the atmosphere and the, and, the, um, and the culture. And so when Deb Gustafson went into Ware Elementary, which was a mess, it was a complete mess. It was the first school in Kansas to be put on improvement. Morale was terrible. Discipline was terrible. Achievement was terrible. And she said to the first faculty meeting, she said, I will never, never write you up, she said to the teachers, for anything except for speaking disrespectfully to a child. Mm -hmm. And the teachers really bristled because they said, it's the students who are disrespectful. And she said, and I've heard this over and over again from other principals um, uh, in these schools, 
the way kids act is a direct consequence of how adults act. We treat students with respect, they will treat us with respect. And that's what I see. Um, it sometimes takes a little while to establish it, especially if there has been a really disrespectful atmosphere. But once that respectful uh, culture is established, it's universal. And there might be a kid or two who, you know, acts out and is mischievous and is a pain in the neck. But um, that's not the culture anymore. The culture is one of respect. Yeah. So Did true. that answer your question? Yeah. And, and um, you know, I think that what you're speaking of uh, is true at all levels, not just yes. uh, secondary school. I think elementary, junior high, uh, high school, all three of those levels uh, require that we continue to to treat students in our buildings with respect and belief that it's possible and they can do it and continue to focus on possibilities. Exactly. Karen, and, um, and this also is a question of treating teachers with respect. I mean, I've seen teachers treated with tremendous disrespect and they turn around and then just sort of slap around the student. I don't mean physically slap around, but you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's a whole um, ecosystem of respect. Yeah. yeah, very good. Karen, what are what are some of the systems that you've seen that have uh, supported that relationship building? Because I know that a lot of schools are talking about relationships, but when it comes down to creating systems that facilitate that, that becomes a little bit more challenging. So, what what did you find? Right. So, so Sergio Garcia became principal in uh, Artesia High School. I write about this school and schools that succeed. And again, it was a complete mess. It was. Um, it serves a, a an area of Los Angeles County that is um, heavily uh, gang involved, and uh, there were a lot of fights, a lot of problems in 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 Artesia before he got there. And one of the big issues for the teachers was that the kids would come in late. And he counted like, I, I forget, hundreds of late kids one morning. And um, what he did was he built a, I can't remember, he, he changed the name of it a few times, but he built a um, center for kids who were late. And it was staffed by counselors. And um, they would be sent to this center. And the the job of the counselors was to start building relationships and understanding what's going on with them. Why are they late? Why are, you know, what's going on? And, and to build the relationship so that they would understand that they were being uh, respected, but they needed to respect the rule, you know, they needed to respect the time of the school as well. And, and now down to, you know, 15 kids or so are late every day. So he hasn't eliminated the problem, but He's gone from hundreds to 15 or so, um, which is a very manageable number. But when they are late, they are, they are again, um, they're the, it's, 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 it's an opportunity to build a relationship. Discipline is not a, a system of punishments, but a system of building relationships. Uh, so dis disciple, think of the word disciple and the word mm -hmm. discipline, and you're no longer thinking punishment, you're thinking education leading, right? So um, so each of these schools has ways of ensuring that kids have someone to talk with, 
at least one grown up and preferably two to to connect with and when they when kids falter when kids are um you know start doing badly in school or their behavior is worse they up the ante on these relationships so maybe someone in the office or a maintenance person tries to reach out to the student and become a mentor or a teacher takes that child on and you know just checks in like five minute five minute check-ins um every day or 15 minutes every week play a game read a book just have a nice conversation kids can go through school and feel at a very hostile place especially once they get off track right once they become sort of uh 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 difficult um for whatever reason school becomes more and more punishing instead of instead of reaching out more and more um to to help them get back on track and of course we know that a lot of times kids are acting out um cuz they can't read right and they're you know like they're just covering um that's not universal there are a lot of reasons kids act out but one of the reasons is they can't read and they really don't want to be asked to read aloud in front of their peers mm -hmm. and so they start clowning around and getting kicked out of class <laughs> right so you have to you have to kind of delve into what's the what's going on underneath the the clowning around the mischievous behavior the um and Sometimes it's mental illness, you know, and they need social work and uh, other kinds of interventions. But sometimes it's as simple as they really need to learn how to read. Yeah. yeah. So feel successful. So last question. This will be our last question. Yeah. Yeah. And Karen, we really appreciate your time today. And we know we've only tapped uh, a small amount of your knowledge and we so appreciate your time. Uh, but if you could, what do you, what, what could you tell um, us or what else do you think is important for us to think about when we really think about improving education for our students? Something we haven't asked you that you think is important for us to know. Well, I mean, it seems to me that one of the things that education is prone to is fads you know let's change things let's fix things let's let's do one-to-one -one devices let's do personalized learning let's do yoga let's do <laughs> mindfulness let's do like i mean there's a million things right out there if educators looked at where their students are where they need to be and just make a change study whether that change worked uh if it did intensify it if it didn't figure out why and do something different you know if they just went through that scientific um uh, uh method over and over and over and over problem hypothesis solution uh, data <laughs> um uh evaluation and just keep doing that cycle over and over and over I think we'd get someplace a lot faster. I mean, it would seem slower. It would seem excruciating at the time, but we'd actually get someplace faster than continually throwing, here's a new program at people. Yeah. Yeah, um, right. And help teachers become the diagnosticians rather than continually trying to diagnose them as the problem. If we 
if, if teachers were seen as the key diagnostician for student learning and really helped to become better and better and better diagnosticians, um, I think that would do more to improve education than anything else. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, thank you so much, Karen. We really appreciate yeah. it. And uh, it's not very fancy and not very, uh, you know, uh, not flashy. Nobody's going to make a lot of money on it. <laughs> <laughs> you've, got some, you've got some pretty uh, meat and potatoes advice there that we probably should reflect on and, and just keep applying. Thank you. Well, thank you. I, I, I think I did kind of go on and on, so I apologize if I did, but. No, it was great. And we'll, yeah, we'll definitely be able to use your advice and, and uh, I think others will be really interested in what you have to say for sure. Yeah, and if you don't well, thank mind, you so much. Yeah, and if you don't mind, you know, we, we, like I said, just barely scratched the surface as we get along down the road. If you, if you don't mind, we might call you back with uh, information about your next book. Great. Thanks so much. <laughs> All, right. All right. Thank you, Thank you Karen. Nice Have a good weekend. Okay. You as well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.